All right. Welcome in. Before we start this show, I wanted to talk about forgiveness. Once again, I want to encourage you to forgive others. Somebody in your past, somebody maybe that slighted you, some angry moment, take time to forgive them. Now, most importantly, forgive yourself. Forgive yourself for something you've been holding on to, maybe a disappointment in your past, some argument where you turned out to be a jackass. It's all right. We are all in this human experience together, and we need to forgive ourselves, and we need to forgive others to move forward with positivity. You are your current self. Each day, you have the opportunity to reinvent your experience. Make your future self proud. Mainstream media is dominated by the right and the left. The majority in the middle are left without a voice. You've reached the Conservative Hippie Podcast, a common sense look at life, the universe, and everything. Here's your host, Jay Frat, the Conservative Hippie. Yeah, yeah, that's me. I've got a great show organized. We've got a lot to discuss. Um, right off the top, I want to talk cryptocurrency. Uh, it seems now we can look back and Elon Musk might have called the top in the market. Some would say he caused the top in the market. Um, Elon Musk, uh, founder of Tesla, uh, announced, made a big announcement when he was going to accept Bitcoin um, for, as payments for Tesla vehicles. Then recently, in early May, he came out and said he was no longer going to accept Bitcoin as payment, and he trashed the cryptocurrency, saying that it relied too much on fossil fuels, and he couldn't, uh, he couldn't um, promote uh, a cryptocurrency that relied so heavily on fossil fuels. And that, that, that was the top in Bitcoin. It's been going down since then, basically halved. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about cryptocurrency and its carbon footprint and the debate therein. Because Elon did not just talk about cryptocurrency in general. He specifically pointed out Bitcoin. And I am astonished that a man capable of great self-reflection failed to recognize that his secondary product, Tesla electric vehicles, maintain their charge with electricity from the same power grid that Bitcoin miners use. Of course, this charging action on carbon-based electricity is counterbalanced by a perceived positive cost benefit. But that requires a secondary analytical process to figure out. Why isn't the same secondary analytical process applied to Bitcoin in this analysis? Whenever you contemplate the carbon impact of any technology, you have to take an unbiased look at the secondary layers to the cost-benefit analysis. One analytical point I thought of in the comparison of an electric vehicle and Bitcoin is the assumption of renewable energy as the driving resource. The EV industry has plans to build into their network of charging stations renewable energy sourcing and lithium battery banks to store the energy in off-peak times. 
These plans are often referred to in the long-term elimination of carbon in the EV footprint of the world. But this renewable sourcing consideration doesn't reach the snap analysis of Bitcoin mining. But it should. Did you know 39% of the energy used by Bitcoin miners are from renewable resources? And 75% of miners use renewables within their energy mix. And Bitcoin mining is a business. Think about the number one variable cost within that business. It's power. The very nature of cost cutting and Bitcoin mining viability ensures reliance on cheap and renewable energy. What you don't hear in the debate about Bitcoin mining carbon effects is how efficient the miners already are at tapping cheap energy. For example, a large portion of Bitcoin mining draws from hydroelectric sourcing. There is a ton of unused wasted energy from the hydroelectric process. They simply aren't near major power consumption centers. Bitcoin miners are able to consume this wasted overcapacity of hydroelectric facilities. The carbon cost benefit analysis of Bitcoin has to consider the utilitarian value of Bitcoin to humanity. It's ironic that the same people pushing Bitcoin down as a skeptical gamble are the same people encouraging global migration and governmental structures. Take a look at Nigeria. Did you know Nigeria ranks third in Bitcoin trading volumes only behind Russia and the United States? Bitcoin holds the most utility for those living in a bankless society. Or those who need to send payments across borders to family members. In the past few years, political turmoil has embattled Venezuela, forcing millions to move into neighboring Colombia. Transplants can use Bitcoin to send money back to their family members, and it is safe from confiscation of a dictatorial regime. Not to mention the transfer cost savings of skipping the toll booth at Western Union. Finally, I have often wondered what the basic value measurement is for Bitcoin. Our fiat paper used to be backed by gold. Then, before the printing press went wild, some theorized that our fiat paper money was tied to oil. My friend Tom Luongo suggests that all the magic of the dollar maintaining reserve currency status is in proof of guns. What would Bitcoin be tied to? The answer seems obvious. Wouldn't the value of Bitcoin be an inherent measure of electricity? As the world weans itself off carbon-based electricity production, wouldn't this exact monetary measurement be the perfect currency of the future? For all the talk about carbon tax, I wonder why our monetary overlords haven't figured this out yet. Ah yes, the overlord's power comes from the management of said monetary system. And now we can see the foundation of the carbon Bitcoin propaganda campaign. See stupid, Bitcoin is terrible for the environment. It can't be a viable monetary structure for humanity. Get it now? Lawrence Wintermeyer 
wrote a great piece in Forbes magazine looking at the carbon Bitcoin debate. He ended his piece with these words. Perhaps super genius Elon should read them. And I quote, If you are interested in engaging in the debate in the global community of digitalists and policymakers, I suggest you, you, you use reliable facts to make your case. It is perfectly acceptable to come down on either side of the debate, but make an informed case. Spouting rhetoric from the last thing you read in social media or the gutter press or from the last talking head you listened to in media land is not submissible evidence in this global forum and makes you look like a Luddite. Perhaps Elon Musk uh, needs to look a little bit further into Bitcoin mining and the carbon footprint, much like he has every day when he makes his case for Tesla electric vehicles. And we won't even get into the lithium mining process, where it's processed, and how we're extracting lithium from the earth, and the impacts of that on the environment. I know Elon doesn't like to discuss it. But before I finish with this block to open up the show, I love talking about cryptocurrency. I love learning about cryptocurrency. Uh, something I learned recently, uh, maybe known to many, um, but it, we all need to remember as we become crypto experts, only 1.5% of the globe is actually using holding Bitcoin. So we are at the very, very beginnings of this early adoption. So one thing I learned as I was looking into uh, why uh, the price of Bitcoin affected the carbon footprint of Bitcoin, I discovered that all of the power consumption is in the mining. Often experts in cryptocurrency will use the term hashing in two different ways. Hashing power of crypto miners because they need to uh, verify all of these transactions and it's a race to do that. And then when you use your Bitcoin, uh, it, these each transaction needs to go through this hashing process. Well, I kind of always thought of those two things as the same thing and thus uh, uh, power consumption and power consumption being used for both things. Turns out I was mistaken and I learned a little bit more. So as the price of Bitcoin goes up, why, you know, when we reached 60,000 and we st stayed heavy, uh, we stayed steady between 50 and 60,000 for uh, a long while with Bitcoin pricing, more miners came online because it made the price more attractive to set up their mining operations. And that's where this power spike, this power consumption, this carbon footprint debate comes from when cryptocurrency, when Bitcoin reaches that price, more miners come into the field. The hashing of everyday transactions and using Bitcoin, um, like I'm hoping more and more people start doing with the cryptocurrency, that does not affect the carbon footprint. That's all just done in the digital space, uh, already existing networks. But I do find it interesting that this, so the price goes up, so more miners enter the field. What I find terribly interesting, and I was talking with Sean Cover about this, that I would love 
to learn more, I'd love to hear stories of failed Bitcoin miners. You see, it's not just it's it's not just everything to go and set up your com computer infrastructure and to start mining and whiz bang, you're a success. You're su you're able to mine Bitcoin. It doesn't work like that. It's it's actually a competition. All these miners are competing to be the fastest, to be the most efficient at the hashing process. Because the ones who are first, the ones who hash the most, they earn the Bitcoin. Therefore, in some ways, I almost think that if the price can rise and stay steady at fifty, sixty thousand dollars, and we see all these miners come into the field, wouldn't you eventually see these miners drop out? Now that we've seen the Bitcoin price halved and we're down in the 30s as I do this podcast, how many of those new miners that entered the space are no longer the price metric, the price point no longer fits their business model that they set up their, uh, that their warehouses of computers? I almost think that this competition, this business competition, in some ways would have a self vetting, uh, it would almost limit the carbon footprint eventually, as people would learn that you can't just throw money, open up warehouses, set up computers, and mine Bitcoin successfully. The more failures that happen, the higher the bar the of, of entry into that space. Therefore, at some point, there's going to be only a few crypto uh, Bitcoin miners, right? Uh, you can't just go in. The barrier to entry would be too high. And I don't think that that's thought of, that next level thinking. I don't think that's thought of in this carbon footprint debate of Bitcoin. And for example, uh, you know, we heard a lot about it between fifty dollars and $60,000. All of a sudden, the carbon footprint of Bitcoin became a debate, right? You don't hear it so much in the 30s. And I, and I find that fascinating. And I think that with each level that the price goes up, we're going to see a vetting, if you will, of new miners that come on board. Maybe some old ones with old infrastructure are no longer viable. They just can't compete with that new hashing power. But at some point, it's going to recycle. So some are going to drop out uh, and more are going to come online. And who, who would win out in the end? If it's a business and they're mining this Bitcoin for a business, they absolutely want the cheapest electricity. So therefore, in the end, I think the ones that are using the cheapest, the most renewable energy sources are going to be the Bitcoin miners that win in the end and stay strong in the field. So really, I don't even think that this whole carbon footprint of Bitcoin is even debatable at this point. I think we are so new uh, in this cryptocurrency taking hold uh, as this monetary means of transfer between humans, that this debate comes up because it's a talking point for the globalists, and it's always on the mind of someone who's, uh, who's got a bit of swagger, but with his swagger, uh, Elon Musk is very whimsical, right? Oh, I'm going to take Bitcoin one day. Oh, I'm not going to take Bitcoin the next day. Meanwhile, he's mining the earth for lithium and pushing all of this lithium. I believe the carbon footprint Bitcoin debate will disappear at some point. I think there's too many metrics, too many layers of benefit to Bitcoin, too many 
um, arguments that display the efficiency of the currency. Keep in mind, we haven't even got into the carbon footprint of monetary systems that Bitcoin is going to replace. So, you know, let's just settle down when we're always reaching for a, a debate to, to decide what's good and what isn't good for the earth. You know, it, I guess it's healthy to have the debate, but I, I think that this one is hands down in favor of Bitcoin. It's the tweet. It's the tweet. It's the tweet. It's the tweet. It's the tweet of the week. It's the tweet of the week. It's the tweet, 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 tweet. It's the tweet of the week. All right, so juicy. I mean, hypocrisy in our bureaucratic and political class is we're never short supply but at justin underscore heart uh, organized and found a gem in the rough cdc hypocrisy and false panic cdc director rochelle walensky recently sounded the alarm bells with panicked words regarding our near future struggle with covid19 how many times have we heard about our near impending doom in this past year? Clearly, these are smart people, but what is the underlying agenda when time after time our medical bureaucratic leaders fail to acknowledge when they have been wrong or led us astray? It's bizarre to see them continuously push forward without self-reflection. But hey, you can't turn down the opportunity to throw out a first pitch, right? Priorities. Let's get to these sound bites. The first sound bite comes on March 29th, where our CDC director goes off script. I'm going to pause here. I'm going to lose the script, and I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. We have so much to look forward to, so much promise and potential of where we are, and so much reason for hope, but right now I'm scared. Oh, she's scared. She is shook, and she makes a point to say she's going to go off script. Don't you pay attention to her eyes as she looks down and reads part of her statement after she goes off script. Well, go figure. Maybe she should have put a timeline or time frame on her fear and how, how concerned she was for our country. She is the CDC director right there going off script to say how concerned and panicked she was. Well, how did it turn out? Well, let's see what she was doing two months later on May 29th. Won't you please welcome the 19th director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Catching Dr. Walensky's pitch is Christian Vasquez. Okay, let's see a strike. Thank you, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, for all that you and everyone at the CDC does to protect our safety, health, and security at home and abroad. There she was, not explaining how wrong she was to be panicked and full of fear two months previous, nope, without a mask, to a full-capacity crowd in Boston, 
She was throwing out the first pitch. Just a great reward for a great public servant. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of Smokin' Jays. Please take the time to visit SmokinJays.com. They have over 2,000 products, from puzzles and posters to pipes and purses. Everything for your smoking lifestyle. Use coupon code HIPPIE at checkout for 15% off your order. Right now, I'm wearing a beautiful sundress I got from Smokin' Jays. Just visit the link in the show notes. Don't forget, coupon code HIPPIE. That's H-I-P-P-I-E for 15% off and to support this podcast. Of course, right now, the audit is going on. The forensic audit is going on in Maricopa County in Arizona, and a lot of Republicans are pinning their hopes. I guess some people think that Donald Trump is going to ride in and be president once again once they determine election fraud took place, and they think the Maricopa audit is the first domino in many. I guess there's an audit going on in New Hampshire, and they're talking about an audit in Virginia and Georgia and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan. Yeah! There we go. There's our Howard Dean moment of the day. I don't want to talk about that. You can go online and participate in the yelling match that is... uh, Uh, One side saying, we're just trying to verify results, and the other side saying, they're they're screwing with the election. We don't need an audit. I mean, I do not want to participate in that nonsense, all right? I'm, I'm hopeful and watching the audits. What I do want to point out, in this debate, I just had somebody, I, I retweeted something, I made a comment on somebody talking about an audit. Um, a lot of times I've actually tried to temper people's expectations because I don't believe there's a thing called decertification, so I don't know what the end game is. Uh, a lot of the auditors are saying it's to prevent uh, election fraud in the future. I, you know, I just say, hey, why don't we not have an open mail-in ballot election like we did in 2020? What I want to talk about is the absolute hypocrisy, no shame in this ping-pong match back and forth. It, it drives me absolutely mad. And the thing that I notice is it goes beyond some sort of partisan politics where you can understand their narrative from their particular slant, right? We've always heard of the spin room. The spin has gotten to the point where it seems like they're literally trying to gaslight citizens of the United States of America, and it's, it's terrible. It's, it's the cause of divisiveness, not the audit, not the election fraud, but the utter denial of what's been said in the past. It, they just push forward as if nothing was ever said, and they move on to the next line. I wanted to share with you some sound bites from 2018. We recently also, I actually held a demonstration for my colleagues. This is Kamala here at Harris. The Capitol. 
um, where Vice we President. brought in um, folks who, before our eyes, hacked election machines. Um, those that are not, those that are being used in many states, but are not state of the art from our perspective. Uh, We're very Amy concerned Klobuchar. because there's only three companies. You could easily hack into them. It makes it seem like all these states are doing different things, but in fact, three companies are controlling them. Forty-three of American voters use voting machines that researchers have found have serious security flaws including back doors. These companies are accountable to no one. They won't answer basic questions about their cybersecurity practices, and the biggest companies won't answer any questions at all. Five states have no paper trail, and that means there is no way to prove the numbers the voting machines put out are legitimate. So much for Cybersecurity 101. Just remember that the next time somebody tells you that the 2020 election was the most secure in our nation's history. Wink! These people have no shame. It's absolutely ridiculous at this point. Just from 2018, all the cries that they had when they weren't in power. Then they gain power, and all of a sudden, if you question the election and the integrity of our democracy, you are anti-American. You're a traitor. You're seditious. And I've just had enough of it. So you remember, if you're out there and you're a Democrat, you're a proud Democrat, maybe you're a social Democrat, whatever, libertarian cool down the rhetoric and what we have to all look at are these charlatans that are supposedly elected by us and they represent us and it's clearly just a game it's clearly just a game it's just a power struggle it's just a ping pong match of hypocrisy the way people are being shut down for their legitimate concerns and their support for normal process, a.k.a. audits, to verify results. It's just disgusting, and I'm tired of it, and I wanted to put those sound bites in there. I'm an accountant by trade. Audits are a normal mechanism to verify results. I was talking with somebody the other day, and we both came to the conclusion— Audits should be done. They should be random and they should be mandatory, not just at the federal level, but at the state county level. Audits should be commonplace. But let's move on. I will leave this segment with two glorious sound bites. Yet, CNN continued to push the narrative that there is no evidence of voter fraud. I can tell you that what the data has shown overwhelmingly is that election, this was most, the most secure election in American history. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. This is John Devon, The Foundation. I want to encourage you to spread the love and share the conservative hippie podcast. We are building this community one person 
at a time. All right. Unfortunately, we're going to end the show on a dark, depressing note uh, with the Kamloops Massacre. 215 bodies of children found in a mass grave in British Columbia this past week. They were discovered with ground-penetrating radar on the property of a former residential school for indigenous children. Residential school is a very nice phrasing. The facility was more an internment re-education camp for indigenous children forcibly taken from their homes. It was located in Kamloops, British Columbia, and operated from the late 1800s to the 1970s with the intent to assimilate the native children into Canadian society. The Kamloops facility was one of the largest of many of these re-education residential schools in Canada. The Catholic Church ran the schools from 1890 to 1969 with funding from the Canadian government. Estimates claim that as many as 150,000 children went through the assimilation school system during its operation. Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission estimates that 4,000 children lost their lives in that time. The 215 recently discovered are not the only ones. More bodies are expected to be found on the Kamloops property and at other residential schools across the country. The Canadian government established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to recognize the tragic governmental policy. Justin Trudeau recently issued an apology after the recent mass grave was discovered. But as to date, there has been no apology or recognition from the Catholic Church. There are scores of documented cases of ritual abuse applied at the hands of church officials administering the boarding schools. From rape to mental and physical abuse, the residential schools sound more like torture facilities for indigenous children. Federal apologies are nice. Let's give them a big cheer. But where are the calls for justice? These aren't terrible tales of the Wild West, a bygone era too distant to recognize. This is a recent history in Canada. Where are all the calls to find these Catholic psychopaths and bring them to justice? They say there are no records of the children. Their bodies are the record now. I'm sure the Catholic Church and their state benefactors have records of the priests and nuns who worked at the schools. Those potentially murderous brothers and sisters must be rooted out. And if they committed the acts under the sanctioning of the Canadian state, then where are the calls to bring the maniacal bureaucrats to justice? Mainstream media is full of polite notions of accidents, disease, and death, but no mention of murder, despite numerous horrendous abuse charges. Our white president, Joe Biden, speaks of white supremacy being the largest threat to the U.S. this week. He points the finger at average Americans, but his own past of racially charged legislation gets overlooked. Wild conspiracy involving the Queen of England and the Kamloops School has received attention, 
but the role of the white monarchy and the white heads of the Catholic Church all seem to escape blame for this genocide. Perhaps white supremacy is a problem today, but those who are guilty are projecting their shame onto others so as to avoid penance. Pay attention to this story. Look at how it is framed as a tragedy. Look at how our controlled media reached a fevered state to hold some groups accountable for political gain, while horrendous abuse and public policy like this gets washed into history without a legitimate attempt to correct the record or seek justice. I think that's why this story was so interesting to me, is the way that it's written about how it's a tragedy, and how they're finding bodies that were always rumored to be there, and these tales of abuse. But in any story I've looked at, every single one of them, I have only seen calls for the church to apologize. There are no calls to seek justice, no calls to find out who these maniacal people were that abused these children. And I'm not talking about some general term like the church under the state sanctioning. I'm talking about the actual people. Surely there are people that witness the abuse. Surely there are people that want to speak out. But they're not being heard, and they're not being written about, and apparently they're not being sought. Let's be friends. We're all on this cosmic spaceship together. Subscribe and share the Conservative Hippie Podcast. Visit our sponsors, SmokinJays.com. Everything for your smoking lifestyle. StonerHoroscopes.com. Adora Zen dishes cosmic vibes for the stoner at heart. KickFromTheSpot.com. Soccer is American.